This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, today is the second Sunday in the season of Advent, uh, which comes from the Latin word meaning arrival or coming. And Advent is the first season in the church liturgical calendar. This is our new year, so to speak, in the church year. And Advent is marked by the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And each Sunday, we light one of these outer four candles. This morning, we light the second of four candles. We, we light the hope candle, the faith candle, the pink joy candle and peace, all leading up to Christmas Eve when we light the center Christ candle, which is white, symbolizing the purity of our Savior. But, but rather than a season of, of celebration, Advent is a season of both historical reflection and eschatological anticipation. Right? Here's what I mean. It is historical as we look back, reflecting on what has already come. Right, the incarnation of Jesus, his arrival in his first advent when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The coming of the promised Messiah, the baby who was born, Christ the King. But it's also eschatological as we look forward, longing for the return of our King, anticipating his reign in his second advent. Fleming Rutledge, in her book uh, on Advent, The Once and Future Coming of, of Jesus Christ, she opens her book saying, Of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church. It asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. We're going to spend this Advent season in the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah in a series that we're calling, For Unto Us a Child is Born. And we're going to look forward, anticipating Christ's second Advent by going back over 700 years before his first Advent in, the, in chapter 6 through 9 here in the book of Isaiah. And I love how this section of Isaiah's prophecy it captures that anticipation, that, that emotion of, of longing. It's a section of prophecy that contains two of the, the most familiar passages of, of Advent's anticipation. Right? It has a promise of Emmanuel, of God with us in chapter 7, and a promise of a child who would be born and be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace in chapter 9. And so we're going to begin our Advent season here in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 6, with a vision of hope. That's the title of our sermon this morning, a vision of hope. And if you haven't already, let's take out our Bibles. Let's open up to the, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And what we're going to see here is a vision that, that's going to help us see, most importantly, who God is. But we're not only going to see who God is, we're going to see who we are in relation to God, how unlike God we are, and how desperately in need of God we are as we reflect on Christ's first advent and anticipate his second. And Isaiah, he begins here in verse 1 by dating his vision. He says it, it takes place in the year of King Uzziah, the year that King Uzziah died, which would have been about 739, 740 B.C. At this time, remember, the, the nation of Israel, it's, it's been divided into two. It's, it's been split into two. And Uzziah was king of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. 
his reign. It's recorded in, in the book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 26. And Uzziah was a good king for most of his 52-year-long reign. He, uh, he was the greatest king since Solomon, the son of, son of David. The, the, the kingdom, it, it grew under his reign. The people prospered. But towards the end of his reign, things turned. The people, they, they turned from God and they begin to trust in this king and all that he had provided and the, and the ways in which he had protected them. It says in verse 16 that, that when he was strong near the end of his reign, he grew proud and that led to his destruction as God. He, he struck Isaiah, uh, Uzziah with, uh, with leprosy. And as a, as a leper, he was banned from God's temple. He was uh, excluded from God's people and from worship and this darkness began to hover over God's people, over the nation. And it's in the midst of this looming darkness that Isaiah was given this vision that we see in chapter 6, one that begins with a vision of God. Right? It begins with a vision of God as Isaiah. He's, he's transported to the, the heavenly throne room, right? To the holy of holies. And, and there, the, the veil that separated creation from the presence of his creator had, had been removed, it had been torn down. And, and there where the Ark of the Covenant should have stood, should have sat. Look what was there and said. Look at me in verse 1. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe had filled the temple. And in the midst of the death of this human king who had failed his people was a vision of the eternal, sovereign, and faithful king. He, he was exalted, wasn't he? He was high and lifted up. And he wasn't frantically pacing around. No, he was sitting upon his throne. He was calmly ruling over his creation. And he was so glorious, so majestic, that the mere train of his robe, it says it filled the entire temple. Isaiah saw the very presence of God unveiled before his eyes what we would refer to as a, a theophany, right? A, a visible manifestation or appearance of God's presence to human beings. And yet it was not the full extent of God's majesty. It wasn't the full extent of his glory. If we go back to Exodus 33, remember Moses, he pleaded with God. He said, please, God, show me your glory. And God, he, he lovingly responded, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You can see the fullness of God's majesty. It's, it is too much for the human eyes to see. His divine holiness is, it is too much for our human minds to even comprehend. No, instead, what God did is he graciously gave Isaiah just this limited glimpse of his infinite glory. But that's not all he saw. Right? As he arrived and his eyes began to adjust, he, he began to see more, kind of like when you turn the lights on in the dark and, and you're blinded at first and you see a little, but then things slowly come into focus. You begin to see more. And look at what he saw next here in verse 2. He, he says, above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two... He flew. This is the only place in Scripture where the seraphim are mentioned by name, these angelic beings that were flying around. Only um, when we think of angels at, at Christmas time, um, 
I don't think that's what these guys looked like. See, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew name here that's used actually means fiery. It means uh, burning ones. And in other places, the root word is used for, for serpents. And so rather than Hallmark's cute, cuddly, chubby little cherubim, little baby angels that you just want to squeeze their cheeks, Rather than the the Hobby Lobby, long, elegant, flowing hair and robes. No, these guys were probably more dragon-like in appearance, right? Flaming and flying around. They were terrifying beings, but yet they were also humble and obedient beings. He says they got three pairs of wings, and with the first, they were covering their face because they knew that they were not worthy to gaze directly into the face of God. With another pair, they covered their feet, which we think means that they were, they were not choosing their own path, but obedient to God. And with the third pair, they were flying about in service to God. But listen next, now that we've seen what he saw, listen to what Isaiah heard in verse 3. He says, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And with their wings, the seraphim lived in constant service to God. And with their voices, they sang in constant worship of God, a God who was not just holy, but holy, 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 right? Infinite in holiness, set apart and altogether different, divinely distinct from creation. And yet the holiness of this, this infinite transcendent God of the heavens, a creator of the universe, he, he's also near, it says. He is here. His presence is, is with us as his holiness is, is expressed in his glory, a manifestation of his holiness throughout his entire creation as the whole earth and all of its abundance, he says, is full of his glory here with us. But not only Did Isaiah see the vision with his eyes? Not only did he hear the vision with his ears, he he felt this vision. He experienced God's presence with his entire being. In verse 4, it says that the foundations of the thresholds, they shook at the voice of him who called. And the shaking of the earth, it's, it's creation's response to the presence of its creator. Reminds me of... uh. Growing up in Iowa, we would occasionally have uh, B-52s flying overhead on training missions as they uh, took off from Offutt Air Force Base just outside of Omaha in that other state across the Missouri River that shall not be named. It's Nebraska. <laughs> Iowa is so insecure that we just like got to mock everybody around us because we have nothing, um, as evidenced by the game last night. But uh, the B-52s, when they would fly overhead, like, you didn't hear them coming. You felt them coming. Yeah, you trembled in their presence as they flew overhead, right? The, the windows rattled. The whole, the whole house was shaking. And that's what Isaiah was feeling here. God's presence, it, was, it overwhelmed his senses, he, even his sense of smell, right? It says the house was filled with smoke, he was, he was breathing in the, the aroma from the incense that was burning on top of the altar, breathing it into his lungs. This whole scene, it's, it's, it's reminiscent of, of Exodus 19, isn't it? As, as Moses went to ascend to meet with God, God, he, he descended atop Mount Sinai in fire, it says. And it says the whole mountain 
was wrapped in smoke. And the whole mountain, it it trembled greatly at his presence. Creation responding to the presence of its creator. And you know, you read a passage like this, and and you picture Isaiah just just overcome with emotion, right? By by the enormity of everything that he was experiencing. I'm picturing him, him lying prostrate on the ground, tears flowing from his eyes, just overcome. And and I read a passage like this, and and I want that. I want that for me, right? I want that for you. I want that for us. I want us to experience that, to experience God's presence in such an an overwhelming, all-consuming, almost terrifying way with with all of our senses, with our entire being, seeing and hearing and feeling and smelling and tasting. And I read a passage like this, and I'm reminded that we get a taste of this. We get get a glimpse of this every Sunday when we gather together, don't we? And I think we've lost sight of that. I think we've lost sight of that over the last couple of years. I think we've forgotten what it is that makes this time together so special, so incredibly special. It's it's an intimate encounter of God's presence with God's people. As we, we worship, singing of his holiness in the presence of his glory. And as our attention and our affections become more aware of God, more aware of his presence, more in tune with God, high and lifted up, infinitely holy, full of glory, I think we become increasingly more aware of how unlike God we are, don't we? That was the case for Isaiah as his vision of God. It led to a vision of sin. It says in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw how unlike God he was. He saw how unlike God the people were. And where God is pure and holy and righteous, he and the entire people, they were, they were lost, he says. They had wandered from God. And they were unclean, right? They had disobeyed God. And he was reminded of this, he says, as his, he was reminded of his sin as his eyes gazed upon the majesty of the king, the king of kings, and the glory of the Lord of hosts. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this occurred in conjunction with the death of King Uzziah. John Oswald, an Old Testament professor, he writes that it was only when the lesser king was removed that the greater king could be seen. They were fixated on their own glory, and they had forgotten about God's glory. And I think the same is true of us in this world, isn't it, that our The world distracts our attention and it draws our affection away from God. It draws it downward. It draws it inward, away from God. And when that happens, we tend to do a couple of things with our sin. Number one, we excuse our sin, don't we? We excuse our sin thinking, you know what, it's not that bad. We we rank 
our sin against others. At least I'm not like them. At least I'm not like them. We excuse our sin, but we also, we redefine and we relabel our sin so that it's no longer bad, right? Take, take the sin of, of gossip, for example. We take gossiping with others and we slap a new label on it and we call it processing with others. See, it's no longer sin. We just put a fancy label over the top of it. But the thing is, is when we come and when we stand in the presence of God, those labels, those excuses, they are stripped away. And like Isaiah, we are left facing our true nature, our sinful selves. And so what is Isaiah to do there? What are are we to do here? How can we as, as sinful people ever hope to stand in the presence of a perfect and holy and righteous God? What are we to do? There's nothing we can do. There's not a thing you can do to fix it. There's not a thing you can do to make it right, no matter how hard or how long you try. You will never be able to stand in the presence of God under your own power. Wow, that was a great Christmas message, Pastor Ash. Thanks. It's okay, we're not done. Because rather than despair, what Isaiah saw next was grace. He saw hope in a vision of salvation. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. It gets better, I promise. He says, then one of the seraphim, one of these fiery dragons, he, he, he flew to me. At which point, can we just acknowledge, it's not like, oh, look at that cute little chubby angel flying to me. No, no, no. Dragon's coming. Okay? He's like breathing fire, and he's coming. And he, and he, and he had taken tongs from the altar of coal a burning coal, and he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I told you there was good news. I want you to think about who was doing what here. God brought Isaiah into his presence. God allowed Isaiah to see his glory. God allowed Isaiah to to stand in his holiness. And then when Isaiah felt that guilt and that remorse over his sin that led to repentance, God took away Isaiah's guilt and God atoned for Isaiah's sin. God did everything. Isaiah did nothing. God did everything that was necessary for reconciliation and restoration with him to occur, didn't he? So that Isaiah could stand in his presence. All Isaiah did was confess the sin that made all of this even necessary. And here's the good news of the gospel that we find in Isaiah 6. It's that what God did for Isaiah, he has already done for you, amen? Amen. What God did for Isaiah, he has done for you, and he's done that through Christ's first advent. As Jesus, he took on our sin. He bore our guilt. He was nailed to the cross. He he shed his blood to cleanse us of our shame. He gave his life to atone for our sin. And all we need to do is humbly hold out our hands and receive this gift. That's all we need to do. Receive this free gift of salvation God has given to you 
Knowing that all who receive this free gift of grace, all who believe in the name of the one who secured this gift, the name of Jesus, will be given the right to become children of God. Beloved, chosen, adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And as easy as that sounds, it's really hard to do sometimes, isn't it? It's really hard to do. I had a conversation with someone recently who was struggling with this very thing, struggling to receive, struggling to believe. And she asked me, like, why, Pastor Ash? Why is this so hard? And what we did was we, we actually we just read through this passage together. And as we got to this point, I said, I think we, we tend to do a couple of things. Sometimes, sometimes we think forgiveness is unnecessary, don't we? We think it's unnecessary justifying what we've done, right? Not just tolerating sin, not just excusing it, but relabeling and justifying it so it's no longer sin but good. We do that with our sin, and so we think forgiveness is unnecessary. But I said other times, sometimes we think that forgiveness is undeserved, and it's undeserved because of what we've done. Strayed too far for too long. What I've done is too bad, it's, it's too late, I've I gone too far. And there is some truth in that. The truth is, Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Me, you, everyone here. Our little kids downstairs, as cute as they are. The truth is, none of us are deserving. But that's what makes salvation a gift, isn't it? That's what makes it a gift of God's grace. And the thing is, is you are never able to outrun the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. You can't run too far or stray too far. You can't run for too long. And so my prayer for her, my prayer for you, is that you would see yourself the way God sees you in Christ. that we would see ourselves as his beloved children, both broken and beautiful. We are, we are broken. We, like Israel, like God's people, we are lost. And we are desperately in need of God's saving grace, of his forgiveness, of him taking that action to rescue us. We are broken, but yet we are beautiful because we are created in the image of God. The, the Imago Dei exists in us, in every one of us, you can't lose that. You have been gifted that. And we have been gifted forgiveness. As God's son came to take away our guilt and atone for our sin. And that is the gift that God is extending to us. A gift that you may have received and have since forgotten about. A gift that you may have received and thought you needed to return it. That's just not true. That's the gift God is extending to each and every one of us. And you either receive or reject that gift. That gift either softens your heart or hardens your heart. That gift either leads you closer into more intimacy with God or it pushes you away from God. Isaiah received that cleansing. Isaiah received that free gift of salvation 
from God that he was offering, and it drew him closer to God, leading him to greater trust in God, greater intimacy with God, and what we're going to see next is greater obedience to God, such that when God called for a servant to send Isaiah, he raised his hand like an overanxious fifth grader and said, me, God. He answered immediately. He, he says in verse 8, he says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And what I love is Isaiah, he didn't know where God was sending him, did he? He didn't know what God was sending him to do. Isaiah didn't seek clarification. He didn't ask for more information. He didn't say, I need time to pray about it, God. No, he responded in trust and obedience. Because he knew wherever God would send him, God would be with him. And that whatever God asked him to do, he would equip him. Isaiah didn't need to fully understand God to trust God. Do you see that? He didn't need to understand everything about God to trust God. He knew, as he says later on, that God's ways are higher than his ways. That his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And what we see next is that what God called Isaiah to do was to preach and to preach a vision of judgment. It says in verse 9, it says, go and say to this people. Notice God's not calling them my people anymore, is he? Go say to those people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God had sent prophets warning his people of their sin, calling his people to repent and to return. Each morning or each Sunday morning, I read a, um, a sermon from Eugene Peterson. And this morning's happened to be from Isaiah 42, and he was talking about uh, this phrase, behold my servant, that the prophet would say. And he says, it is the prophet's primary task simply to get us to pay attention to God. It's that simple and that difficult. God first and foremost. Don't miss this. God comes to us, but we are distracted, we are busy, we are preoccupied. And the prophet's primary task is to pay attention to the presence of God in our world and in our lives. And before he can tell us about God, he has to get our attention that God is present, that God is here. God had sent countless prophets to do that. And the people, rather than returning to God, they rejected God. And now God was sending a prophet to preach a message of judgment. And yet what God told Isaiah before he ever stepped to the pulpit is that the people would not understand the message that he was preaching. They wouldn't perceive the urgency of that warning. And it kind of feels like maybe God picked the wrong guy, didn't he? Like, so is Isaiah just not a very good preacher? Is that it? Because, like, you know, there's nothing worse than preaching a dud of a sermon after all week wrestling with a text and you, you stand up here and you can feel in the moment it's just falling completely flat on everybody. Um, you see people checking out. You know, they're getting ready to go a little bit early because it's confusing. You know, you see someone falling asleep because it's boring. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, guys, I'm only halfway through. What are we going to do? And like, there's a, those are those Sundays where I just want to curl up in the fetal position behind the pulpit and cry 
and say, let's pray, dear Heavenly Father, and let's jump to communion. Tim, hurry up and get up here now, and let's do the announcements, let's do the benediction, let's go home, let's watch the bears, where we're going to cry some more. Kind of sounds like Isaiah might not have been a good preacher. Like maybe God picked the wrong guy. Like maybe God needs to send him back down to the minors. Not just AAA, but like A. Like we're not even paying you anymore. Needs to send him down to the G League. This is a Windy City Bulls stuff. And, uh, and people actually accused Isaiah of this later on in chapter 28. Uh, the priests, right? High and mighty priests. They, uh, they actually criticized Isaiah's preaching, saying it was, it's too simple. It was beneath their intellectual capabilities. Here's the thing, y'all ever taught five-year-olds? Teaching five-year-olds is way more difficult than teaching 50-year-olds. Um, teaching five-year-olds, you have to be so clear, so simple, and like, that's what Isaiah's message was. It was, it was clear. The problem wasn't that Isaiah's preaching was confusing, it was clear, it was compelling, it was, it was convicting. It did exactly what God said it would do. God, God's word, it went forth from his mouth, and it did not return empty. It accomplished all that God had proposed. It succeeded in the thing for which God sent it. The problem was that they didn't understand the warning because they didn't perceive the danger that they were in. So they didn't see God's glory, and as a result, their eyes didn't see their own sin. They didn't hear God's voice, and so their ears didn't hear the truth of God's word. They they didn't feel God's presence with them, and so their hearts did not know his love for them. And so with a heavy heart, Isaiah, he, he asked God in verse 11, he says, how long, O Lord? Like, how, how long do I have to keep preaching this, 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 this warning? How, how long will they continue to reject you? How, how long until they repent? And what we see next is that their rejection of God would lead to their destruction at the hand of God. Look at me with verse 11 and 12. God said, until the cities lie waste, without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God had invited his people into this chosen land, and now he was effectively giving them their eviction notice. He was kicking them out. He was, he was enacting the terms and the conditions of the lease agreement that they signed back in Deuteronomy 28. The cities were being destroyed. The land was devastated, and the people, uh, it says, would be plucked from the land. Uh, Leviticus 18 says that the land would vomit out its inhabitants. And what we see is about 150 years later, Babylon came, and Babylon conquered, and the people were plucked from the land. It, it puked them right out, taken away into exile in Babylon. And yet in the midst of all this death and destruction that Isaiah saw in this vision that he was sent to preach, Isaiah also got a glimpse of hope. He got a, a vision of hope here in verse 13. It says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like the terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed, or the holy offspring, is its stump. He compares the people to a forest. 
And over 90% of the trees, they're going to be chopped down. It's going to be laid to waste. And yet, a small remnant will remain and will survive. And God's people would live on, as would God's promises. Because from this devastation, a holy seed would sprout from the stump, right? Hope remained alive. And this vision of hope was the promise of Messiah, of God's anointed one, coming. And that is exactly what happened in Christ's first advent. As the promised shoot from the stump of Jesse sprouted, as the son of David, the heir of the throne, was born in the midst of the most humble of settings, a baby laid in a manger. And the branch from his roots bore fruit, the fruit of our salvation, forgiven by his sacrificial death, right? Freed by his victorious resurrection and filled with the Holy Spirit by his glorious ascension. That is what we remember during Advent. That's what makes this a season of reflection. But this is also a season of of anticipation and of longing. Because I think our world more closely resembles what would come to pass here than we care to admit, doesn't it? We will live in a world that's been ravaged by disease these last couple of years. Latest count shows that over 800,000 lives have been lost in our country alone. Over 5 million in the world in the last two years to one disease. Our world is ravaged by violence. I think we got another reminder of that last week, didn't we? As four more babies lost their lives because of a gun in Oxford, Michigan. But let's not, let's not let the, a death toll define the effects of the devastation, right? The ripple effects of that trauma go well beyond those lives. How we feel this. We feel it every day. We see it in the news. And we're sick of it, aren't we? We're sick and tired of it. And, and like Isaiah, we cry, like, how long, oh Lord? How many more people have to die? How many more shootings do we have to see on the news? How long, oh Lord, enough? And in the midst of that cry, Right? We live in anticipation of Christ's return. Amen? Longing for his second advent. When he comes, he will right all that's wrong. He will restore all that's broken. And so advent is a reminder that one day we will see what Isaiah saw. We will see the fullness of his face, John says in Revelation. The fullness of his face, his infinite holiness. God high and lifted up in glory, our source of light to shine such there'll be no more need for the sun or the moon because we will live in the presence of his light. The lamb is that lamp. One day we will see what Isaiah saw. One day we will hear what Isaiah heard, joining in the multitudes, crying out in one loud voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This renewed heaven and renewed earth is full of your glory. And one day we will feel 
and we will experience that we will spell what Isaiah did as the foundations of the earth will shake at the voice of him who calls down a new Jerusalem from heaven, breathing in the aroma of his incense, experiencing God's presence with the fullness of our entire being. But not yet. Not now. And that's what makes Advent a season of longing. Living in anticipation of that day when Christ will return. And living with hope until that day. Crying, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.